There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In effect, the, the challenge you have for this and trying to understand some of these, what went on, is equivalent to trying to understand what happens in Boris Johnson's premiership in a thousand years' time when you only have Hansard and some clippings from the Morning Star. Salway, and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. As you might have told from that introduction, for today's episode, we're stepping back into antiquity for a look at political life in ancient Rome. Our guest is the Daily Telegraph's political journalist and classics enthusiast, Asa Bennett, who's just written a book entitled Rome Manifesto, looking at how our current crop of politicians could learn a bit from the travails of their ancient forebears. We began our chat with a quick examination of the Prime Minister's own efforts at classical oratory, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, just type Boris Iliad into your preferred search engine and have a watch. It was a good show from Boris because, yeah. obviously, for the audience there, you could see the thing they were enjoying was him saying in his tones, you know, things like, yeah. ooh, gah, eh, you know, sort of just gesticulating, pronouncing the, everything yeah, broadly correctly. But they had no idea what he was on about. And he was yeah. still making clear that he liked to refer back to the Iliad at that point for times of inspiration, which I'm sure many would. But the thing is, what he was actually quoting from were the opening, cha- you know, opening lines of the Iliad, which aren't the most philosophically invigorating because they're just, you know, the opening guidelines of sing to me, muse, of the anger of Achilles and, you know, the Lady of Troy, which isn't exactly timeless axiomatic advice to live your life by. Because, for example, if he's not veering into book two of the Iliad, it's just literally a list of ships that went to Troy. It's just genuinely like, and here are all the people who fought in the Battle of Troy, you know, which isn't exactly, again, the most timeless. But it just shows if you don't know the subject and someone else seems to, then it can always seem pretty impressive. Oh, no, of course. But this, this cuts down to the central truth um, that I've tried, found and tried to be inspired by in my book of certain modern politicians find classics in many ways rightly as a source of inspiration. But in other ways, they just use it to sort of enrich and bamboozle their audiences because they're not going to be checked on the sources they're exactly citing. Um, and obviously the Prime Minister now, uh, you know, he has been pulled up on occasion for... Um, his comparisons. So I, there was one gobbit of uh, during the London mayoral elections. He was quite fond of saying that he was going to be like Pericles as mayor, you know, the great Athenian statesman. 
Um, and I think he made a particular reference to Pericles. And then Ken Livingston decided, having beaten by him once, to actually read some classics and so pointed out, uh, you know, off mic and into actually that was actually uh, Pericles of Tyre you're quoting there. You know, sort of yeah, a, yeah. a play from Shakespeare, not the Pericles of Athens. And he said something like. I know, old boy, but there was a good comparison to make, though, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's typically the most Borisian thing to do. Hmm. Um, so we've got this book, Roe Manifesto, a great stock. We're actually post-Christmas now, but a great stocking filler, I think. What was the genesis of the book? I think it was just several things, to be honest. The general tendency some modern politicians like Boris Johnson have and Jacob Rees-Mogg do to quote history and to their own ends, but also the fact that I... Well, to clear my interest here, I, I studied classics at university and then pivoted to journalism, thinking something more modern and rooted in the present day, yes. Um, thought that there's a way of, you know, setting them both side by side, Roman politics and modern politics, drawing the comparisons out, surely. And, you know, finding that interesting parallels therein. Because obviously we, you know, a big disclaimer here, we know that, um, thankfully... We don't go around killing each other as much as we do back then. Th- things are much less savage. When you have, you know, stabbing in the back, it's a metaphor now, not literal. But then I think it was inspired on seeing the kind of high drama of Brexit and, you know, the way that the European Research Group would be sort of both kingmakers and ousters of prime ministers and all that. You know, there are the prime motivations that drive our politics, that struck me, of, you know, ambition, betrayal, sort of alliances, rail politique, all driving them forward to climb up the greasy pole, or as the Romans knew about then, the cursus honorum, the you know, ladder yeah. of offices. Yeah. This sort of reminded me of when MPs come to Westminster and feel they've got to kind of get go up their own cursus honorum of mm. kind of bag carrying, be a PPS, mm. be a junior minister, and then eventually you might get into the cabinet. Of course, and if they're particularly remarkable, they skip those ranks and go straight to the cabinet or even, you know, from prime minister, as we've seen with, you know, Tony Blair and all sorts of others. And this was very much something you saw in Rome and that for... It was very much a done thing to... Be, have your landed gentry, have a good lineage in politics. So if your father was a consul and your father's father was a consul, of course, you know, you'd have your turn, Buggins' turn as such. Um, but if you defied that, let's say if you were Marcus Tullius Cicero, for example, and were the first of your family to break in by gift of the gab, perhaps, in his case, then you were classed as a novus homo, a new man. So that's where, you know, even now, when you hear politicians telling their stories, it's such a remarkable thing. They make a big play of how outsidery they are, how, how against the odds when you know remember that Neil Kinnock speech of you know I was the first Kinnock in a thousand yeah. years to go to university plagiarised by Joe Biden quite as you say in the start and so look, you know, look at him now and so in the same yeah. way with Cicero the first Cicero ever for him to get into the you know top tier I, I was interested reading the book about how Brutus was descended from kind of a family of rebels yes as well backstabbing and betrayal in the blood in a sense you know you could take take him back to the early days when there were the kings of rome and he had an ancestor who helped overthrow you know tarquinius superbus and you know even as even through his maternal line he was able to trace you know conspiracy in the blood and so that's why when you take the conspiracy that brewed to get rid of julius caesar um he effectively brutus was the figurehead because he had that vintage that premium and also he was you know the protege of Julius Caesar, and so that way there was a sort of deep irony of even his own friends were turning against him. And I found that with that, you know, to quote another Johnson, Stanley Johnson, the Prime Minister's father, uh, you know, he, after Michael Gove stabbed Boris Johnson in the back, metaphorically, you know, did go on the media and say, et tu brute, is what I would say to that. And needless to say, you could see those parallels even then with the 2016 plot, because many times when they were plotting to get rid of uh, 
Julius Caesar, it was because they felt he was power mad. It was almost the opposite, in a sense, with Michael Gove and the Boris Johnson you know, fears, because they thought he was almost be too mad in power. He wasn't serious enough, you know, going off to faff around playing cricket the weekend after the referendum. But in both cases, it's very much apparent, you know, Roman writers note, that if Brutus had stayed his hand, if he'd waited and not panicked and tried to get rid of Caesar, he would have been, you know, deputy leader of the Roman, you know, sort of Caesar you know, dictatorship, you know, the second most powerful person in Rome. In the same way, if Gove had not done that, you know, we have a lovely alternative history to ponder where maybe then he would have been the Boris Gove unbeatable coalition back then rather than us having to wait for three years after a bit of a detour. Yeah, I'm interested, just coming back to the... Um, when you were doing your research for the book... Yes. Um, how big a problem do you think sources is? Because we, we're quite reliant on a smallish band of Roman historians for a lot of our hmm. accounts of what, what went on. Think, uh, so Tacitus and Suetonius. Yes. Um, and they all have their agendas. Exactly. Uh, and they yeah. all make clear that you know, they've been trying their best. And so some of them, they, they do, bless them, acknowledge uh, when they write the quality of their own sources, like a good journalist should, in a sense. So sometimes you have Suetonius saying, you know, it is said that this emperor liked to do this at dinner parties, you know, um, or the rumour had it that, you know, because he liked to tell some tales that were sort of very good reading. But the trouble is, of course, the Chinese whispers we've had over the centuries mean that then you get absolute taken as fact in a fait accompli thing, portraits about you know, Nero and Caligula and uh, you know, all the rest. So uh, but at the same time, we have to remember there were sort of axes to grind. So some, many of those writers were coming in decades after the original leaders they're writing about. They, for example, had a motivation to write, if necessary, damningly about them in the past because they're trying to show that under the present prime, you know, prime ministers or emperors, it's all brilliant, it's wonderful. And for them, they, their main sources that these writers will be drawing on are effectively the imperial records of what laws were passed and, you know, the sort of oral tradition of what happened back then. So, in effect, the the challenge you have for this in trying to understand some of these, what went on, is equivalent to trying to understand what happens in Boris Johnson's premiership in a thousand years' time when you only have Hansard and some clippings from the Morning Star and a couple of yeah. printouts from the Canary, which, you know, you might have some slightly jaundiced views as a result. So I think it's just the key point when I've been trying to make an understanding of it is to declare for readers what's just a writer's supposition, what's, you know, Suetonius saying for a good reason this, um, what's just a good tale. But at the same time, you know, we can broadly accept as fact, you know, if more than one writer's saying it, if, you know, some people are saying a certain battle happened and this was dramatic, then you can broadly accept it was you know, fait accompli, not being skewed. If it's stuff like, for example, one of the big Roman conspiracy theories was who set fire to Rome under Nero's watch. Yes. Emperor Nero blamed the Christians. Obviously, many writers later blamed him because they thought it was a convenient ruse. Uh, then at that point, it is, you know, at least in my writing, I try and draw up that it is contested. There are claims, in a sense. Yeah. And at that point, you know, what was, was very striking is you have to remember the perceptions back then. They it, it seemed to be at the time... Christianity was this very sort of superstitious cult where the rumours had it, and we know this from early Christian writers because they didn't try and knock it on the head, this fake news, was that they thought they were basically incestuous cannibals, the Christians, because whenever they heard the Christians would hail each other as brothers and talk about uh, the transubstantiation where, you know, eat the bread that's figuratively the body of Christ and drink the blood because it's, uh, you know, figuratively the uh, sort of... Sorry, drink the wine because it's figuratively the blood of Christ. They thought there was actual blood and eating babies and it, it yeah. was all sorts of 
fears. So when Nero was to turn to his people and say, it was that lot who did it, quite credible at that point. So yeah, all this rumour and counter-rumour and supposition, it was, it's a challenge even now to write about it. On that sort of topic, I think the book is really good if you think you know a bit about various Roman figures or have an impression of them. Mm. Um, we'll come on to Boudicca in a bit as a sort of an adjunct to the Romans. Nero is a great example of that where, in my mind, he is a wholly negative and sort of demonic figure. Yes. Um, or Caligula is another one who's accused of great depravity. And you point out in the book that a lot of it is stuff that's been made up by historians afterwards or is highly contested, and we kind of ignore the good stuff they might have done. In much the same way as a modern prime minister, say, I don't know, Anthony Eden or something, the only thing you remember about him is Suez. Of course. Uh, but at the same time, it's fascinating, because when I was writing those um, chapters and analysing, you know, what can Nero have his own sort of Trump-like case against the fake news? Uh, you know, part of me was fearing, hang on, you know, am I about to try and you almost do a sort of whitewashing of Roman Hitler, in a sense? And yet, when you look at the writers, they point out all sorts of things. For example, that he, in his early days, was almost uh, critical enough of the state, you know, to the Taxpayers' Alliance would love early Nero, effectively, because he was trying to, you know, reform... Yeah, a great deregulator. ...tax collection, yeah. yes, and to... Because at the time, it was basically a cartel. If you tried to transport goods from province to province through the empire. You had lots of private collectors who'd try and shake you down for all sorts of arbitrary rates and uh, at that point it meant that the tax take was unpredictable and obviously open to all sorts of extortion and you, all that. However, the Nero noted this and tried to scrap indirect taxation, all of it. Um, but then, to, put the, to use the cliche, the vested interests, you know, resisted him. In other words, senators who got quite a lot of money from these tax collectors and had a bit of a private, nice sideline, a second jobs almost, they resisted. They said to him, you know, young emperor, you know, the, the good idea, but let's not do it, in a sense, all sorts of reasons. And so his days as a sort of TPA heartthrob were gone, not to be seen. And then even now, if you look at, uh, effectively, the biggest crime Nero had, reason why Romans hated him so much, was he was a fan of the Greek arts, effectively wanted to be a rock star. He was in the wrong job. And he liked playing the liar. Loved right? it. Yeah. And so as a result, so much so that people didn't really like his music. Um, he was able to play, but just they weren't raving about him in, in the way. So there were sort of cruel jokes that were said by some writers that, oh yes, when he would play in the theatres of Rome, that women would fake pregnancies and giving birth and, you know, people would fake heart attacks to try and be let out of the theatre, which, you know, sort of could defy some reality in that way. Yet when he went around Greece, you know, playing the traditional arts to all these theatres, he was so pleased by how they clearly turned out and didn't you know, kick up a fuss, um, that he basically gave them independence from the Roman Empire, which, again, coming back to the tax point, you know, would yeah. give the public bean counters at the imperial treasury an absolute fit. And so, again, you know, the sort of flightiness is probably why then the Rome would have thought, this man, you know, clearly is a wrong and we have to make sure he is not seen as a sort of sane figure. Um, but at the same time, yes, because coming back earlier to the Great Fire, finally, the Roman writers, you know, and this is kind of, again, with my earlier disclaimer at the opening part of this conversation about how the Romans did have a different value system and were much more brutal, you know, back then they thought that was great, effective, well done. You know, you, you restored discipline. You got rid of those Romans, those cultists, you know, sort of, uh, obviously it was a standard fare to throw people into the games and, uh, you know, have such bloodthirstiness, you know. So if anything, that was just decisive action from him. So all in all, you know, that's someone who could very much, you know, plead a case for the defence. Yeah, I mean, one of the great mistakes is always to try and judge people in the past by modern standards. But I wonder what you think are, what do you think are the strongest parallels between Roman politics and contemporary? 
I think it's about the ambition first off and the fact that there is almost this desire to do whatever it takes to get to the top that was the case back then and the case now in a sense and when, so when you have let's say cicero one of the most fascinating sources I, i'd landed on was his brother effectively writing and he his brother was a sort of lowly politician got to be an edle a sort of magistrate um a guide on how to win Elections. Yeah, I've got lots of notes from Quintus Cicero. Yes. And Voters it, will judge you on what kind of crowd you draw, both hmm. in quality and numbers. Absolutely. And and same goes now. And even now, you see, yeah. what, what was it? Sean Spicer's first uh, appearance for as Trump's spokesman was to boast about how the crowd sizes were the biggest ever, you know, for the, a US presidential inauguration. And it's because even then... They were very much people who were swayed by numbers and crowds and how popular you were. Crowds attracted, you know, like attracted like. And so, for example, if you were going up before the courts, um, you could pay people to follow you and, uh, you know, bewail your fate and beat their breasts and say how terrible this is. And some people would turn and think, you must be a good person if you have all these friends, not quite realising that, you know, the clacks, as it were, that you could attract. And we see that with, you know, Alex Salmond back in the Scottish independence referendum days when he would have press conferences with activists stuffed alongside the journalists who would be clapping his every line, so perhaps to intimidate the journalists, thinking, my gosh, this is such a popular man. And in a way, why, when you see the Prime Minister now back during referendum days and even then during the election also Corbyn 2017, they loved addressing big rallies. The, the bigger, the better. And you can almost see the reason that Corbyn was on his way out was because the rallies in 2019 were nowhere near as big as his, as his heyday. Another thing that from the kind of Quintus Cicero playbook that struck yes. me is getting to know your public. Yes. So knowing people, I think the quote, I have it here, which is, nothing impresses an average voter more than having a candidate remember him. Of course. And, and, and so it's where... When you see that for some, you know, modern day officials and, you know, visiting dignitaries, they may have someone, an aide on hand, you know, to whisper the names yeah. of people. Do you know the Frank Dobson story? Oh, no. There's a great one of Nelson Mandela coming to Downing Street and uh, he's got his own, what mm. the Romans would call a nomenclator, mm. whispering people's names. And he sees Frank Dobson and uh, presumably his aide tells him that he has at some point before in the anti-apartheid movement met Frank Dobson. Mm. And he comes up to him and says... Hello, Frank. And Dobson is so shocked that he just stands there, like, rigid, at which point Mandela goes, do you remember me? <laughs> I mean, that is astonishing. It's, sort of, it, it, it's it, great, though. I mean, it's, uh, but it was ever thus. Absolutely. And, and so when you see that uh, you very much had to relate to the voters in the same way, be seen out and about, you know, shaking hands, smoozing people, um, and so, you know, very much... You, know, you can understand why, because the voters then would think that you were someone they could relate to. Um, and this is what you know Cicero was advised to in his successful run to be consul. Um, whereas if you kind of scarpered from the forum, weren't seen out and about, you were not only then you know, more distant, but rumours could spread as to why. So most strikingly, for example, the Emperor Tiberius. So admittedly, emperors didn't have to run for elections, but they did have to worry about popularity all the same, because obviously if it went south, then there'd be riots and public discontent, you name it. Um, so there was a period where, essentially, he had a scheming Praetorian guard chap called Sejanus, who very much you know, was trying to stoke the fires and say that to him that effectively everyone was out to get him in Rome. You should flee for your safety. And so the emperor made a mistake of doing that. And that meant that when he was retiring to his imperial palace in Capri, in an island just mm. nearby, that uh, all sorts of 
chatter was picked up of people thinking, you know, he was just retiring there and hosting, um, and obviously I know this is a family-friendly podcast, but, you know, he's hosting all sorts of sex parties and having prostitutes perform for him and all sorts of antics. He had an erotic library, was one of the rumours. He'd point to pictures of graphic Karma Sutra-like shenanigans to say what he wanted to happen. And the thing is, that may well be true. That may be a sort of Silvio Berlusconi, Bunga Bunga, you know, the predecessor. Or it may just be absolutely scurrilous nonsense. But the thing is, Sejanus had controlled the letters he was getting, controlled the communications. He had no idea this was happening. And he couldn't knock it on the head. Whereas, obviously, if you were there the whole time, if you stayed in your palace, being very relatable, you know, in the public eye, people would understand what you were doing. So, for example, Augustus, the first emperor, absolute PR man like no other, he, despite being emperor made sure to have his wife taught how to make their own clothes, his daughter how to make their own clothes, and would have them you know, be seen in the courts, in the courtyards, yeah. spinning at the loom. And so he lived in a very modest home, didn't he? It, it's sort of, yes, and it said at the very least that he put it about that he grew up in that modest home, just near where the founders of Rome, Romulus and Remus, grew up, in a sense, in a, one of the main seven hills. And it's all played to this myth that he tried to do of being very humble as a result, being very relatable despite being the emperor. So it's a classic thing that the political class even now have to do, of, you know, being seen to as if know everyone, you know, mixed with people. Hi, how are you? Just, you know, pressing the flesh. But also being eminent enough and, uh, you know, fantastic enough to deserve election in the first place. Just to come uh, to come back a bit, partly for our listeners' benefit, I mean, who, yes. what is the franchise for a Roman politician? I mean, is it everyone who's not a slave? It's the free men of Rome... And in particular, yeah, essentially it's just the men, obviously. Because we all go back to, for example, Greece and say, ah, isn't that wonderful? That is the crucible of democracy, the model of democracy. But the coda on this, the caveat is, yes, again, women didn't have the vote, slaves didn't have the vote. They were just objects, no legal status, the same sort of situation in Rome. And the thing is also, it was fantastically corrupt. Listeners can make their own inferences about the state of modern politics, but in, in, in here it was even worse than they might possibly imagine because you basically had the rich being able to buy votes from the poor, the plebeians, in other words, the non-patricians. Um, the, the poor had the votes and the quantity of votes. The rich had the money in order to secure those votes. And so initially there wasn't even a secret ballot. So obviously you would, and you could very much ensure that you were getting the votes you could. You couldn't be cheated on this if you were trying to offer up the dosh in exchange for support. And then finally, you know, voter transparency, there was reforms that were brought in so that, you know, voters were able to be more independently minded. And this still meant, though, that, you know, there's the same populism, demagoguery, all the same. That means you could try and inspire masses to vote your way. I mean, it's as simple as this, though, that, you know, you couldn't work the dinner party circuit if you were a well-to-do Roman trying to win votes. You had to do so much more than that. However, all the same, just as we see in modern-day society now, if you, you know, appeased you know, the great uh, sort of tribal chieftains, in a sense, because basically Roman society was divided up into not not strictly constituencies, but, you know, local areas, communes, the sort of neighbourhoods, the sort of cohorts. Then they would bring their support and lots of friends with them. So it very much was a numbers a game. like the union block vote in a uh, Labour election. Quite so. And so... Pre-Miliband. You know, also the DUP generally with the Theresa May government. You know, right, sort of, exactly. Um, so obviously this is a key thing. That's why they're trying to seal up the, uh, you know, key CLPs and obviously where Lynn McCluskey decides, everyone will follow it, it feels like. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm just coming back. You were talking there about the uh, we are a family friendly podcast. But yes. Reading this book, I think when people get very upset about modern political rhetoric and how rude people are, yes. perhaps they should take a look back into the annals of history and, it and was see what the Romans asked. used to say about each other. Absolutely. In a sense that, granted, people can be vicious, but by modern standards it feels almost tame in that you can't call people liars in the House of Commons, you have to dance around it. Whereas, you know, Cicero was the most vicious, acid-tongued rhetorician of a lot of them, in a sense. Yeah, I've got the, uh, calling Mark Antony a rent boy. Basically. one of the ones. Uh, <laughs> sort of, you know, a boy for hire. And uh, the worst of the things he'd say were, you know, he was trained in law courts, essentially, when you really had to make a vicious case of the prosecution to try and take someone down. And so, you know, he, in, the, in the so-called speeches called The Philippics, he went after Mark Antony, yes, accusing him of that, accusing him of basically just excessive drunkenness and, you know, being absolutely just chasing women, just being out of control, being a complete lush, you know, you name it, he was after him. And so it wasn't just, it was sort of criminality and then some he'd be sort of going after. And he didn't care because he felt it was a public necessity that he was an enemy number one in that sense. And so it was open warfare, dramatic tension on the Senate floor when he was making these speeches. But then again, the problem with Roman politics being so much more vicious is Cicero paid for that with his life because then his head was chopped off and his tongue was said to have been stripped out nailed to the sort of doors of the senate and where Antony's wife was then being attacking them with a pin to show her distaste for all the sort of calumnies and insults that were spread and i think it's that for example even it's not just cicero obviously he even then when he'd be trying to throw all these insults in the law court sometimes the cases didn't win he would still fail so all the clever you know, jibes in the world wouldn't necessarily swing a vote or swing the juries. When you had modern, well, ancient poets, Catullus, for example, they would make political commentary as well. The satirists would try and veer in one too many times. And uh, Catullus made a mistake of trying to be a bit too blunt about Caesar, Julius Caesar, insinuating that perhaps he had improper relations with some of his aides. Maybe he 
was far too close to one man in particular sort of thing um, and made all sorts of puns in which basically the aide's name was a Roman slang for a male gentleman's part in a sense a very sort of crude terminology all this and uh, you think at that point yeah, it's right, very bawdy his poetry I think absolutely. it's fair to say oh absolutely and I think it's at that point Caesar then marked himself out as actually quite graceful then because he sort of met him invited him to dinner and then forgave him when obviously he had the, his, basically his life in his hands and so afterwards Catullus was just pathetically grateful and you know, this is a way he won round all these critics. Just you know, obviously, the stakes were so high. If you messed it's, up. it's a nice example of Roman statecraft, there, isn't it? Mm. That you can you can demonstrate your wisdom, but also keep that threat hanging in the air by keeping the odd critic alive. Of course, the, the sword of Damocles, in a sense. You know, the, after the great myth, in that you leave that threat ever there because. Clementia, it was called. You know, clemency was one of the strongest ways Romans could display power over someone, in effect. And you see this now, even then, with Boris Johnson and the 21 Tories he stripped the whip of. And obviously a few of them have come back, and yet you know that they will be absolutely loyal as anything now because they're just grateful to be given back their, that power. And even then, it was briefed by sources close to number 10, that wasn't it, that uh, the ladder you know, of... The ladder back in, you know, is long, but the bottom rungs are on fire, in a sense. And so clearly some of them didn't want to take the chance. David Gort, Dominic Grieve, they're off from this parliament. But those who are still in, um, you know, the sort of seven or so, you know, you've barely heard a peep out of them, in a sense, because they're just happy to be there. We've got their jobs back. I mean, we like to, uh, coming back to sort of contemporary politics compared to your Mm. average Roman politician, it strikes me that they actually were, in some respects, quite a lot more skillful than a modern politician, particularly when you think of oratory. Mm. And you would be expected as a Roman politician, wouldn't you, to be able to declaim at great length without any notes or anything like that, using the Ars Memoria. Oh, yes, very much so. Where Obviously, you remember a few years ago when it was so impressive of David Cameron to stand up and make his leadership pitch without any notes, and that in times uh, where, you know, Ed Miliband or Cameron again would want to have great high drama in their speeches, they'd go without notes. It yeah. would be so astonishing. Well, Michael Gove always used to do it, which was a real pain because there'd be no transcript. Mm. Uh, absolutely, and it, it, or there'd be a sort of teleprompter off to the side uh, slowly being introduced. Whereas in Roman times, they took pride in being able to speak seemingly from the heart, just knowing everything, whether it was by rote or at least, you know, the early emperors and Roman leaders very much had to just come off the cuff of what they wanted to say. In some ways, because they could just be very brief in what they needed to say uh, to inspire people. So obviously, you know, Caesar was said when the when his Roman armies in Gaul were on the verge of mutiny, he was said to essentially, re, you know, restore order with just a word and just referring to them, you know, as my sort of Roman soldiers, reminding them that they needed to be who they were serving and rather than, rather than sort of kicking up a fuss and, you know, letting the enemy, the Rome, the French the Ro- you know, the Gauls deny the empire its glory. And so they, often they, they were very sort of laconic in that sense. At the same time, though, they would be having to make sure to practice and practice again so they could deliver these lines so fluidly and off the cuff. And so at that point, you get the classical Greek rhetoricians would teach all sorts of slightly cockamamie theories on how you improve your, your skills. For example, going out to a, a busy and stormy sea and trying to shout almost louder than the sea. And uh, you know, Nero, for example, in order to improve his vocal strength, was said to f- swear off apples. Just don't eat apples. Right, because they damage and, your vocal cords. Yeah, something and also, like that. Exactly. Yeah. And, he, and he'd also lie down a lot... With 
with weights on his chest, just yeah. sort of you know chest exercises. Because and the thing is, at that point, one of the things among the many things thrown at Nero, uh, as we've discussed before, perhaps the worst some noted was that he wrote down his words. He didn't actually just speak from the cuff. He actually, you know, would have to sort of borrow. I think the, fra- the phrase they use is borrowed words, as if he's a speechwriter. Oh, my word. You know, sort of... And so that's why the start of a greater trend now in which everyone needs these crutches to remember things. Uh, you know, granted, the result clearly is thus being... It's a high-wire act, as we saw when Ed Miliband forgot to say the deficit one year. Mm. But then what comes out seems more impactful. It's interesting, though, as well, that you didn't necessarily have to be a particularly polished performer. So mm. Claudius is one of the emperors you talk about, mm. who was very unimpressive... And I won't want to compare him to Ed Miliband, but mm. he had a speech impediment. Ed Miliband had this very nasal delivery, which I think always counted against him a bit. Yes. So how, I mean, how important was that performative aspect of being successful? You could really shut the critics up by just doing, getting things done in that sense. Granted, Ed Miliband didn't have that because he wasn't anywhere near power, but then just imagine if he'd done something truly transformative as an environment secretary, in which people would just think it was some dweeb who was very on about you know, Copenhagen and the climate change summits, then it would be easier to fight back. Because obviously Claudius had a strong way of doing that, which was basically invading Britain. <laughs> sort of, so we owe our Romanization to Claudius's speech impediment. Almost right. this is a butterfly effect in a sense, because people mocked him a yeah. lot. And it's the um, Eric Joyce's headbutt of uh... absolutely in that sense, because he well, Julius Caesar made a start on Britain. He's basically landed in Kent with some troops, had to wander around, and right. you know came back. This is forty-five BC or something like that. Mm, is that right? mm. And then the thing is, then a few decades later, it'll be around the turn of the millennium. Then you know Claudius comes back, this time actually staying here for good. And obviously thus began you know, Rome, the Roman superstate's long relationship with uh, the far-flung sort of nation that um, you know, when you even had other emperors trying and failing to invade Britain, you know, Claudius made a start. Just coming, we talked a fair bit about politics, but there are also some timeless economic lessons we can learn from different emperors' policies. I mean, we still, even to this day, see governments trying to price fix, but you can go back to... I think Diocletian. Yes. Or uh, there's some other emperors. Vespasian tried to have a tax on urine. Yes. And uh, because, in his words, as he told his rather disgusted son, money doesn't smell. And, uh, you know, so obviously just enjoy. However, however it comes from, it's, you know, very good and it's worthwhile for the exchequer. In a sense, it wasn't just a tax on urine per se, it was because obviously it was very good, the chemicals in it, for tanning leather. And mm, so, or whitening your toga. Well, exactly, right? exactly. And yeah. so this is quite a good resource. And as a result, the French can pay grudging tributes. But if you say une vespasienne, you know, that's a name, a very sort of antiquated name for a lavatory, a sort of urinal. Um, and even now, the Diocletian is the most catastrophic error of the lot, I would So say. he debased the currency, is that right? Yeah, cheapened the currency. Julian fixed the price of grain, I've got here. It's Diocletian <laughs> fixed... Everything. Fixed the price of grain and everything else. Julian had another go at that, basically. Copycat. But Diocletian's the first big price fixer and, you know, clearly starting a, a pattern of ruin. In yeah. about sort of the third or fourth century, essentially, this whole sort of direction when the Roman Empire was on its way out, it seemed, because it was getting so big and unwieldy. Um, and that... Because he, he saw... Well, 
to, to, to give the case of defence for a second, you know, he saw in his view inflation was on the up. He feared that there were sort of profiteers, people accumulating goods and you know black markets, price gouging, selling it at whatever they wanted. And so he felt if he could just send out an edict in which he railed at all these sort of privateers and the iniquities of the free market in very much Corbynish tones, you know, sort of setting out the prices that everything needed to be very specifically went on and on for loads and loads of goods, and in the hope that this would finally regulate everything. And at the same time, the trouble is then it didn't. Because, and, and, it, and it obviously didn't help this by also then debasing the currency to try and level everything, to try and balance the books. It, the, these coins that originally from sort of bronze, you know, sort of were melted down and turned into inferior metals of tin and things like that. You know, they became tenth of their value each time he was trying this program of, you know, almost a sort of quantitative easing style intervention in that sense. The trouble is, as we now learn from the writers, inflation went up. You know, everything just went haywire in a sense. So he kept trying to do it again and again. And at that point, even more sort of, there was stockpiling that would happen. And the markets were going somewhat haywire in that sense because people were doing sort of under the radar sort of prices. The edicts, even though they were fiercely enforced in the letter with, you know, all sorts of fines and even risking death if you try not to sell things at the price he set... You know, they were being disobeyed in practice. And so there are reports of all sorts of fights at markets uh, you know, when they would catch people out or selling at favourable favorable rates. And, and it started this kind of eventual spiral of you know, economic collapse in which you know, amid the kind of massive debates and post-mortems we all have about what, well, maybe I do, about why did the Roman Empire collapse? You know, was it immigration? Was it the vandals? Was it, you know, did it just get too big? This is a real prime mover because, you know, afterwards the Roman Empire basically split into two, the Byzantines and the Western Roman Empire, um, and then everything else it just sort of petered out from that. Yeah, I think there's, uh, we had another guest on our, on our podcast called Tim Kane, who's mm. written a whole book on, and it's Rome is one of the powers, and he, his theory is that it's uh, the accumulation of those vested interests mm. that you talked about that lead to a kind of sclerosis which is, I think, an argument that might appeal to some sort of Brexity types. Oh, of course. About the way the European Union is going. If you try and spread yourself too far, and um, you know, those tentacles can start to strangle you. If hmm. you like. And the thing is, the Roman Empire, it is the early model for the European Union in many ways, as Boris Johnson identified in his own book, The Dream of Rome. And given the you know, Treaty of Rome and everything else, that, that it is the central model you see you know, going almost further across the world than in you know, the wildest dreams of Ursula von der Leyen and team. Because it was trying to centralise everything, you, know, you did accept... Roman gods, you know, the Ro- Roman money. And, you know, as a result, you would get, if you like, the economic stimulus of having Roman forces coming in, spending money or in your markets. And so you may think it was like the single biggest customer in Europe, almost a sort of single market, practically. And so granted, this is why for some Brexiteers, you know, they may well look, and they did when during Theresa May's time when she was wrestling with Europe, they, they looked to Boudicca for inspiration, you know, as a fine, fiery woman who, you know, fought back against the oppressors and particularly were trying to shake down her fellow citizens for more money when they needed to, you know, fill up the Roman coffers. Admittedly, and this is always the problem that like others have had to acknowledge, she did lose, absolutely, in the field of battle. But you could argue, actually, and military historians have said that she was just outmaneuvered. She effectively was fighting them um, in a bottleneck, very much their 
terrain, their preferred plane of battle. Whereas if she, and yet she outnumbered them. She had the finer and better fighters. She had better supplies. Yet if she drew them out into the open plain, fought on her preferred field, just like if Theresa May hadn't gone to Brussels, hadn't them come to London for negotiations, hadn't agreed to the sequencing, you know, and to agree on fight on their terms. Maybe things would have turned out differently for, you know, the Brexit Boudicca that people thought she could have been. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think with Boudicca especially, I think I hadn't realised quite how badly written up she'd been in sub- by subsequent historians that you mm. mentioned in the book who saw her as basically, as herself, a bit of a vandal, a bit of a kind of yob. If you oh, well, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, and from the Roman side, they saw absolutely horrendous, uh, you know, terror arising in Britain, which at the time was just the, the furthest... Britain, let's remember, for them, was the furthest regions and parts of their known world. You know, beyond that, you know, monsters, zombies, you know, cannibals, you know, you name it. And, and so in, in this sense, you instead just had some rebels in Kent, a frightful woman, in, in their view, come up, burning several cit- you know, cities down in absolutely horrendous acts, and admittedly... And this is where, again, you, you almost... Um, for a lot of it, it may well be Roman myth-making, in a sense, uh, really, really trying to zhuzh up how terrifying she was, because there's always really graphic... Um, I won't go into it here, you know, details of what she may have done, what her troops may have done to the Roman citizens when she you know, burnt the cities down. Absolute raising it. Um, and, and I couldn't resist comparing it to how, you know, Margaret Thatcher was then written up and demonised by certain corners of, uh, you know, when she was handbagging the Europeans um, in the, you know, after a pretty rough dealing with uh, Jacques Chirac, then Prime Minister of France in the 90s, he was heard uh, complaining to his colleagues saying, what does this woman want? My balls on a tray. Yes. Yeah. I think it was even, what does this housewife want? Yes, it? yes, even actually. more disparity. Even more. And then I think he was always a great menagere. Referring yeah. to sort of Monsieur Thatcher, you know, sort yeah, of, yeah. you know, masculinizing her. Because it was this idea that, you know, she was just something else. And in the same ways that then other writers in Roman times, the ancients, would very much talk up this a wild-eyed Boudicca, you know, sort of... I, I'm, I'm going to half remember this, I'm afraid, but you remember that then quote, I think Mitterrand said about uh, Thatcher, that, you know, the wild eyes of Caligula and the lips of Marilyn Monroe. It's that sort of idea that, yes, there was yeah. something truly, you know, scary about her. Which brings us back to that kind of myth-making thing that we were talking about before, with, with Caligula being a fine example yes. of that, where you could kind of say almost anything in the sense that, I think the writers of I, Claudius had him eating a baby Mm. Or a fetus, which never happened. They just made yeah, it no, up. Absolute, because... absolute fake news. But you know, who's gonna who's gonna protest? Because it just seems you know you want your bogeyman in that way. And so, uh, for example, I found that when reading Mary Beard, you know, very much useful here because obviously, if you want to go full hard classics, you know, then this is gonna be an introduction, a palate cleanser before Either you go Either Mary, Mary Beard, Beard or Aaron Banks, depending. On... Well, in that yeah. sense, <laughs> who's your classical expert? But, need, but needless to say, with Beard, she was pointing out that some of the translations or suggestions of you know put up bluntly, you know, incest dinner parties were mistranslations of basically seating plans. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it was, you know, she, it would be the sister, his sister would lay next to him and an adjoining, be, you know, bench, uh, table. Instead, it was uh, laying on him. Oh, my. That's yeah. a whole different connotation. Just to clarify what I said before, Mary Beard and Aaron Banks, the sort of Brexiteer donut, had a quite well-publicised argument on yes. Twitter, which I think he tried to question her knowledge of the ancient world. Yeah, classic um, bank-splaining in that sense. Yeah, you know, exactly. I figured you'd take her on. And I think they basically agreed to disagree, and they lovely chat in The Guardian about this, um, because he was trying to get this idea that it was all about immigration, they let too many people in, and to be fair, Romans, uh, the Roman Empire did, uh, was very liberal about 
letting people in because it would award them citizenship and the hope they could sign up to values. And so it was very much in the keeping of the Boris Johnson giving everyone amnesty if they were legal immigrants, for example, um, because you provide you sign up to the values and credo of the Roman Empire, that's what you should do. And I think he was then trying to argue that it weakened the body politic and obviously then all the raids that happened that forced basically the empire to implode internally. Uh, whereas then as I'm maybe getting on to and fleshing out here, the Mary Beard was perhaps suggesting it's far more complex than that. Given clearly, it could be, it's a sort of concatenation of forces ranging from the sort of economy being absolutely torpid and you know up the spout, given the relentless interventions, inflation being rampant, to just generally, yeah, every, the finances being in a mess, the armies being all over the place, just getting to use the phrase, you know, too big and therefore failing. So just to sort of finish off, I mean, we could be here all day going through all the very many anecdotes. It's one of the challenges, because um, I have to write this while yeah, doing no. my day job in the Telegraph. And the thing is, if, I, if I'd, you know, it could have been twice as long if I went through all of Roman history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got, well, you've got centuries and centuries and centuries. Mm. But just to finish, a kind of elevator pitch style challenge. If you were sitting in front of the education secretary now trying to say, we need more classics in schools... Something mm. Boris Johnson said himself, I think, mm. in state schools. What would you say as a classicist? Well, he's a fantastic advocate for it, yes. Um, well, obviously, I'd like to name-check Classics for All in the Open University as uh, outlets that are being very good at expanding this outreach. And look, essentially, you know, the classics, the Romans, you know, they are such fantastic uh, you know, characters and stories to engage with. They teach us so much about ourselves. They hold up a mirror to us in ways that are truly remarkable and, you know, the, just the stories are so exciting anyway. So this is why it's just a shame that state schools, you know, such a minority endeavour and interest to have Latin on the curriculum these days. You know, and it, it is then that shame that it's something you have to almost go to the independent sector for because, you know, you, you can really learn so much, you know, across, about culture, about the history of thought and society um, in which it is also very fascinating. It's just a shame to be denied to so many. Yeah, so for the next five years, make Latin great again. Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Well, Asa, thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely fascinating. And definitely a quick plug for Roe Manifesto, which is in all good bookshops now. Thank you very much.